secret agent. I could do that. Geddon, I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we're here this time to take on Total Recall? I think, uh, didn't we do that last week? I recall we did. Um, yeah, I think I'm a spy. Mmm, right, right. I thought I was a freedom fighter. Well, you look like Kate Beckinsale. Well, thank you. That's yeah. very nice of you to say. Total Recall 2012. That's right. Hot on the heels of Total Recall 1990. Yeah. The remake that nobody really remembers happened. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they make something for that. Yeah. Uh, now, I am curious, Tony. This movie comes out in the summer of 2012. I remember a lot of movie nerds, mostly, were very angry that they were remaking Total Recall. At the time, were you? No, not really. I thought we're right in the middle of Hollywood remaking pretty much everything. Right. So, Total Recall seemed like a natural choice, given how great a movie it is. But does it, though, when you really think of what made that movie special? Well, now that I've watched the new Total Recall, (laughs) it's shone a little bit of a light on just how special that movie was. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I don't think I was outraged at the time either, but probably because I was just beaten down after so many remakes. Like, when I'm seeing a Psycho remake, it's like, to me, there's no more, you know, <laughs> nothing was going to offend me anymore. <laughs> well, you also hadn't seen Total Recall in a long time. That's also true. Yeah, I think for me, like, the one that would really put me over the edge would be a Jaws remake. Beyond that... You know it's coming. I know. Oh, I know. I, I live in fear of that. It will happen one day in my lifetime. I'm, I'm sure of that. You know, but... Um, so, okay, so that begs the question then. When Total Recall, this remake, came out in 2012, did you go to see it in theaters? I sure did. Did you? Yes. And? Uh, I remember at the time actually really liking it. It hadn't gotten great reviews, but uh, I remember thinking... You know, it's not as good as the original, but uh, I'll give it a chance, and gave it a chance, I did, and uh, I ended up coming out thinking, no, that wasn't bad. Yeah, I remember I went to it as well, I think opening weekend on like a matinee, and I think it was the time period where matinees were cheaper, so it was definitely like a, (laughs) hey, I've got a day off, I'll take the uh, matinee price, Uh, because I remember I went alone, because no one wanted to go with me, I guess, did you Uh, go alone? (laughs) Uh, no, I didn't, but oh. you should you should have called, Cam. Oh, well, that would have been better. <laughs> and, uh, I, I remember being, yeah, very ambivalent to that movie's existence. None of the trailers had grabbed me at all, or made me think this was going to be that good, but I still went, even though the reviews were lousy. And I remember just kind of walking out, and kind of shrugging my shoulders, and being like, yeah, I, that was definitely a movie I watched for two hours, and that was about it. I, I really, to be honest with you, have not thought about this movie since walking out of that theater. Really, I've actually discussed this with uh, friends of mine and other people who've seen it. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, the the third act, the the final battle with, uh, I guess it was Brian Cranston. I remember thinking, that was pretty weak, but the rest of the movie wasn't bad. And, I, and I've been actually kind of a defender of this movie for the last uh, several years. From your memory banks, do you recall which of the Arnold remakes you were more in favor of between this and Conan? This one, for sure. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I didn't really like the the Conan and the Barbarian remake when it came out. I mean, we'll be visiting that one at some point. Right. And I'm keeping an open mind. I think I maybe fell a little more towards Conan, but like not by a lot. (laughs) Not by a lot at all. So, okay. So, yeah, this movie comes out, yeah, as I said, the summer of 2012. It had a budget of $125 million. Why? Why would they sink a huge amount of money into a Total Recall remake without Arnold? That seems like a really weird decision. Well, I don't know. That's not that much money in 2012 dollars. It's a fair chunk of money. The original Total Recall at the time was allegedly the most expensive movie ever made at 65 million 1990 dollars. Sure. So 125 2012 dollars. It doesn't seem like it's that outrageous. I suppose, but I mean, when I look at that original, they're putting that on the shoulders of Schwarzenegger because remember he had like the most creative control over that movie than like anything else he did. Mm-hmm. He's coming off of Twins and Predator, and, like, he's really built up as an icon. You have Verhoeven, who's coming off of RoboCop. Like, I can understand why that seems like a good gamble to bet big money on. But, like, this remake? 
with like Len Wiseman, the director of the first two Underworld movies, and which, Colin Farrell, which have been profitable. People like Colin they, Farrell. I don't think either Underworld made anywhere close to 125 million dollars. Well, that's because they didn't have the budget. That's <laughs> or Colin Farrell. Yeah, that's right. But I feel like this was also the era where Colin Farrell was starting to. Like, Hollywood had become insistent that he was a marquee, like, leading man. And he was just putting out, like, dud after dud after dud of... You know, as soon as they started writing Colin Farrell as weird characters, suddenly he became great. But this is the era where they're like, write him as your basic leading man. And it was so not working. Yeah, he was cranking out a lot at this time. Yeah. Like, once they did, uh, you know, like, some of his independent stuff... That's when he got really interesting as an actor. Mm-hmm. Around the time he did In Bruges, like that's when suddenly people went, "Wait, Colin Farrell is great," and he began to tip into like character roles, and it, to this day is great. Mm-hmm. So like I really like him a lot now. But around this point in time in 2012, I was just like, "This guy's a snore." I don't think I felt any more warmth towards him then than I do about like Jai Courtney or Sam Worthington now. Oh come on, Colin Farrell <laughs> is way better than Sam Worthington or Jai Courtney. Now he is, but at that era where he's doing like the recruit, I mean, come on. Can you imagine Jai Courtney in in Bruges or Sam Worthington? I don't think no. it would be a very good movie. No, no. Well, with that awareness, of course, that was kind of a wake-up call. But, yeah. But anyways, yeah, this movie, as I said, $125 million budget. Domestic, it made $59 million. That's not great. Uh, international, 140 for a worldwide total of 199 So, uh, I mean, this movie... Probably made its money back once you factor in marketing and everything. Yeah, home video, all that. It was definitely... I would think probably crossed the line into the very slightest shades of black. But I don't think anyone at the studio was like, we got a green light total recall too. Yeah, so it was a bit of a disappointment, but no careers were ruined. That's right. It was number 52 for the year between the Sacha Baron Cohen movie The Dictator and the 3D re-release of Titanic. Oh, man. I went and saw that 3D re-release. I didn't. Yeah, it was actually at a, a restaurant. I remember my friend Tyler and my friend Simon, we were all, three of us are going to go see Titanic. And the waitress came by, and we were just paying our bills, and she goes, what are you guys up to now? And my friend Simon just said, we're definitely not three guys going to the Titanic re-release. <laughs> and she looked at us in a certain amount of disgust, and I was like, you're kidding, right? And we were like, uh, no. I, well, I don't blame her. <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, anyways, so the top ten for that year. At number one, you had Marvel's Avengers. That was like their big, big hit at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, at number two, The Dark Knight Rises. Number three, Hunger Games. Number four, Skyfall. Number five, Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn, part two. The craziest one. Yeah, what a fantastic film. That's right. <laughs> Did you ever see that one? Uh, I, I don't know which ones I saw and I which ones I didn't I think you might see. enjoy that one because it's really weird. I didn't enjoy any of them. so Most of them are pretty bad. This one's bad too, but it's weird. Number six, The Amazing Spider-Man. One of my most hated of superhero movies. Uh, number seven, Brave. Number eight, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. Number nine, Ted. And number ten, Madagascar 3, Europe's Most Wanted. So, we've talked about this before on the podcast. We are now firmly in the era where the only things that really make money are franchise films, uh, Disney films, and superhero movies. That's right. And some other notables this year. Um, at number 33, you had The Expendables 2. So, you know, we talked about that in our Expendables episode. Um, at number 49, you had Underworld Awakening. The first one in normal continuity, not directed by Len Wiseman. There was a third one that was a prequel called Rise of the Lycans. But Len Wiseman did all the continuity ones featuring Kate Beckinsale up until this one. I'm not going to lie, they all kind of blend in together with me, with the possible exception of the one with Bill Nye in it. I think he's in all of them, isn't he? <laughs> well, there you go. They all <laughs> they definitely all blend together in like a long, extended, uh, kind of subpar vampire genre film. <laughs> Just a lot of scenes lit in blue. <laughs> and at number 77, in the world of unnecessary remakes, you had Red Dawn, the remake with uh, Chris Hemsworth. That's right. Uh, that was definitely the, I think that might have been the first of the totally unnecessary remakes. It's up there. It was definitely, around this point, they're really congealing into a mass. They're like, Red Dawn wasn't a big hit, but let's give Point Break a try. <laughs> 
Um, and just an interesting comparison. This Total Recall, as I said, $59 million domestic. The original did $119 million. And uh, the uh, worldwide was 140 for the new one, 142 for the original. For their totals, the new one was 199 as I said, and the original was 261 yeah. And that's separated by... 22 years. Yeah. So the original that, really did kick its ass. And last time I checked, a dollar in 1990 went a lot farther than it does in 2012. Definitely. Definitely. So, uh, yeah, this movie, once again, I remember there was a lot of talk at the time, a lot of the outrage about, you can't remake Total Recall. And the filmmakers said, no, no, don't worry. We're taking this back to the source. That's right. Back to the Philip K. Dick story. We can remember it for you wholesale. And did they do that? Well, you have to answer that one for me because you've read the story at some point in your life. Uh, Well, I can say with some level of assurance that this movie is... No closer to the Philip K. Dick story than the original one was. And if anything, this movie was based on the 1990 movie rather than the Philip K. Dick story. Which would seem to be the case, given if you look at the credits, all the original writers of the 1990 Total Recall are all credited with this film for a screen story and based on the motion picture. Although i got to wonder if any of these writers... Had any idea this remake was even happening until the royalty checks started rolling in? I would have to imagine most of them didn't. Or even really care. I'm sure they're just like, oh, yeah, oh, oh, pay me, whatever, thanks. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, a couple other interesting facts. Um, for the lead for this movie, originally they wanted Tom Hardy and Michael Fassbender. Those were the two that were up for it. And I guess Tom Hardy probably left to do Dark Knight Rises. I, I have to I, believe that. I've got to imagine so. And I think Fassbender might have even gone off to do um, Prometheus around this point, too. Yeah, probably better choices for both of them. Yeah, and um, the Jessica Biel role is interesting in that there's a list of actresses who are apparently up for it, but I have a hard time believing, like, okay, so Eva Green is listed, Diane Kruger, who was in Inglorious Bastards, and Kate Bosworth. And, uh, Well, what I, I can say is it doesn't really matter. It doesn't. It's a very boring role. Um, you could have anyone in that role. It's hard to believe Eva Green loses that one out, though, coming off a of Casino Royale. I don't know. I would have thought she would have been a shoe in for that one. I don't know. Maybe Justin was pulling some strings behind the scenes here. Maybe. And uh, Ethan Hawke shot a whole supporting role for this movie that was cut. Oh, I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. I don't know who it was, but uh, apparently Ethan Hawke did shoot some stuff for this movie. So, there you have it. He was in the rave scene that was cut in the uh, <laughs> in the mutant colony or whatever. It, they weren't even mutants in this movie. Well, there was one. <laughs> there was one. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah, okay. So, Tony, before we get into this movie and our thoughts on it now, what's this movie about? Well, Cam, I'm glad you asked. This movie is set sometime after the end of the 21st century, where chemical warfare has reduced the world into an inhospitable wasteland except for two areas. One, the United Federation of Britain... Uh, which is in modern-day England. Right. And two, the colony, which is in Australia. For some reason, almost everybody speaks with an American accent in both of these places. Except for Kate Beckinsale. Yeah, and even she puts one on for a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Needlessly. Yeah. And what we have is we have Everyman Douglas Quaid, played by Colin Farrell, who goes into recall uh, to get the memories of a spy drama put into his brain and lo and behold, turns out he's actually a real spy. That's right. And his life unravels, and he gets drawn into a web of international espionage. That's right. And you can tell he's a spy fan because he reads Ian Fleming James Bond novels on screen. Yes, in the in the fall, one of the weirdest movie, uh, <laughs> one of the weirdest movie conceits I've ever seen. This movie loves elevators, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah, they should have called this movie Total Elevator. <laughs> but now, Cam, you saw this opening matinee sure. by yourself. Right. Alone. You Broken. Thought, you thought it was okay. Yeah. What did you think of it this time? Well, Tony, we've talked in the past, and we will in the future, about movies that are far worse than this movie. Um, you know, see Arnold run is one of the worst things I've ever had to sit through in my life. It was just so dull, but very few of the movies that we've covered that were bad were as boring to me as this movie was to rewatch. This is like the epitome of like generic sci-fi blockbuster where 
all of the interesting, great ideas that made the original Total Recall so energizing to watch are gone. There's no charisma to any of the performances, and it just is like CG for the sake of CG everywhere. To the point where it's like, I don't even know what to focus on. It's just like, look at the screen, there's CG everywhere. And I don't know, like, Len Wiseman is a director, I don't hate him. Like, I, I enjoyed Live Free or Die Hard. I didn't really care for the two Underworld movies I saw that he directed, but, you know, I like the Die Hard one, the fourth one, and uh, the action in this is just, like, really generic. There's nothing exciting about it. This is, like, a flat line of a movie, but, you know, I guess it's kind of interesting to watch it from the vantage point, especially since we covered the original Total Recall recently, and to see how you can take almost the same material, almost, and somehow make it uninteresting versus what Verhoeven did and just brought it to life. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. What about you? I hated this. Movie. Yeah. I I, uh, I don't know what I was thinking when I watched it the first time, uh, thinking it was actually a pretty good movie. I'm now kind of embarrassed about having been defending this movie for many years. Yeah. Uh, I have totally revisited my opinion, uh, maybe more so than I have for any movie we've watched on this podcast. And I didn't enjoy this movie at all. I, I checked out probably the last half an hour of the movie i, I was yeah. just like oh come on let, let's roll the credits here let's get it let's get out of this thing yeah um and and it's like you said though especially i think part of that is having just watched the 1990 total recall which in many respects is a total masterpiece yeah and and it's like you said you take the same material and rather than building on it or making it more interesting or adding some original ideas to great ideas They've just kind of taken the source material and made it worse. Made it more generic. Yeah, it's a very weird thing to do, given how much there was to work with there, both in terms of the original story and just the the visual and the pop culture credibility that the original Total Recall has. And I feel like if you're plugging yourself into a remake of Total Recall, the original really does give you the freedom to be like... Let's just be crazy. Like, let's create insane ideas and visuals. Because the original did that so much with the mutants and Verhoeven basically taking this, you know, it's a fairly standard premise. Like, it's not like it's a, you know, richly layered premise. It's a really great sci-fi hook for a movie that he really did his own thing with and created an entire world around it. And it's like, it gives you permission to do that. It's so weird that they made this movie that feels like devoid of any ideas it's all stuff i feel like i've seen in other movies yeah it felt so derivative and there was a number of times watching this movie where you could just see almost shot for shot that some idea was just lifted off of some other project and just grafted onto this thing and not always great projects either like there was a lot of the star wars prequel stuff in there big time uh there was uh, a lot, uh, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but a lot of kind of Blade Runner ripoffs. Big time, yeah. Uh, All the future world stuff this, in, in Britain look like Blade Runner. Yeah, and this came out, I think, two or three years after the Star Trek reboot. A lot of stuff looked the same as, as that, which you lots pointed of, out while we were watching it. Yeah, lots of lens flares. A lot of the framing looked like Star Trek. You could tell they were trying to go for that J.J. Abrams approach to action in spots as well. Yeah, and you, you take a look for, at the Verhoeven-directed uh, Total Recall, and it's just full of original ideas, and you could tell everyone who's making these movies wants to make money and lots of it. Yeah. But he also wanted to make an original film, something that would stand out and be different from other things, and they don't want to do that here at all. All they want to make is money, and they figured the best way to do it was by taking things that had made money before and doing that again. Yeah, that's, I got a, that's the impression I got. I got a couple other up for my list because I just at a certain point began to write down the influences. There's a whole section that seems like it's from the movie Inception. Yeah, you're right. Totally. The whole like weightless stuff felt very Inception-y. Um, iRobot, which was a big hit at the time with Will Smith. All this stuff with these automated synthetic beings reminded me a lot of iRobot, especially when they're having fistfights with them. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I gotta wonder if Will Smith was talking to the producers of this movie saying, you know, somehow I told you so, just don't seem to say it bad enough. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one, uh, not a sci-fi movie, but there's a lot of uh, the Jason Bourne franchise in this as well, with the handling of the Colin Farrell character. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought about the Jason Bourne reference there. Like, this really does feel like Len Wiseman's mashup of popular blockbusters. Yeah, and there are some throwbacks to the original Total Recall, which I actually kind of liked. There was a reference to uh, some guy who went to Recall, thought he was the King of Mars. Yeah. Uh, there's. I like that up until, like, Colin Farrell's like, I want to go to Mars. And the whole audience is like, yeah, we want you to go to Mars, too. <laughs> yeah, he's like, well, I could just get on an elevator. <laughs> More than one. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, maybe it's time that we get into this movie. Um, we'll give our standard spiel. If you haven't seen this movie, uh, or if you haven't seen it in a while and you're planning on watching it, uh, we are going to be spoiling it for you. Uh, to be honest, there's not a ton to spoil here. Normally, I'm a little bit more diligent about saying, yeah, yeah, turn us off, go watch the movie. But, I mean, you can listen to us or not listen to us. Uh, it's your call. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because when you talk about the original Total Recall, I feel like there's spoilers. Like yeah. there's genuine elements of the story that you don't want to spoil for a new viewer. Whereas like this one strips out all the ambiguity and all of the mysteries to that original. So it kind of, if you look at that poster and you see Colin Farrell with a gun, you're like, well, I guess he's the hero. Yep. That's it. You can probably figure out the rest from there. Yeah. I think the only thing to really spoil is that it's not a very good movie. Yeah. I mean... There's no twist to it at all, are there? Not really. Maybe the Kate Beckinsale character, but I don't know if you would... Uh, I'm sure the marketing more than gave that away. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's the twist where there was no plan really all along, and uh, Brian yeah. Cranston's character was just uh, acting as a puppet to get him into the Resistance, but it's not much of a twist as far as this kind of a what's real and what's not real philosophical sci-fi adventure is concerned well the original did present i believe it was like three moments that really did you know push the audience to consider was this a dream like was schwarzenegger still plugged in at recall uh you know it, and it left it open to a certain degree whereas like this one has one scene that could not be less convincing if it tried yeah there's not a lot of ambiguity here no like it's just devoid of it but it, that just, like, begs the question, then, like, why remake Total Recall? I don't know. Maybe we're missing something. I, that's, that's, I came out of this movie. That's kind of what I thought. I thought, man, like, maybe I'm just not the target audience. Maybe I'm too dumb for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because the two writers that, you know, took that original script and rewrote it, like, they have some credits I like. Um, like, Kurt Wimmer was, I think, the primary writer on this one. Um, he directed the movie Equilibrium which people like. I'm not a big fan. He also wrote and directed Ultraviolet. I should have thrown back to Equilibrium, actually, because there was a lot of Equilibrium-like scenes in this movie as well. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, and he also wrote uh, Salt, Law-Abiding Citizen, Sphere, and Point Break 2.0. So in retrospect, I really don't like anything he's done, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but the other writer, Mark Baumbach, who also uh, co-wrote this one. He uh, wrote uh, Live Free or Die Hard, so that's the Len Wiseman connection. But he also wrote Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and War for the Planet of the Apes, two movies I love. And he also wrote The Wolverine. Well, you know, I, I like the chunk of those movies. Well, I like the ape ones. Did you not like The Wolverine? Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the strongest X-Men movie, I didn't think. No, but it was... I think I liked it a lot because it was, you know, the follow-up to X-Men Origins Wolverine, which was so terrible. Oh, maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. I always get them confused. No, the Wolverine's the one in Japan. Oh, yeah, no, I, I didn't really like that one okay, much either. fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. But, like, I, I do think he has some talent. So, it's just weird to see, you know, two writers... Kurt Wimmer, I don't really like him very much uh, in terms of his output, but I will say it has a very specific feel to it. This movie feels too generic even for him. Although it's interesting with Len Wiseman directing, the number of times that people landed the way they would land as if they were in an underworld movie is kind yeah. of uncanny, isn't it? Oh, he is big on like weightless CG, where characters just like drop seven stories and land straight on their feet. Yeah, or with one leg bent and with the other leg stuck out at an angle, maybe punching the ground. Yeah. Prefer, if it's a female character, almost certainly wearing platform shoes. Of course. <laughs> I mean, and also there's like a scene on the fall. The fall is this big elevator that connects uh, New Britain to the colony. In the most implausible science fiction conceit I think I've ever seen in a film. Well, lay it out. What is the fall, Tony? Uh, well, the Earth, following the chemical war, like I said earlier has been totally decimated except for a more or less idyllic Great Britain or England. I'm not really sure which how how far the new British Federation goes. Right. And then there's uh, 
Australia, the colony, which is a crowded place where most of the workers, I guess it's like a suburb. Right. And people commute from the colony to the United Federation of Britain. How do they do that, Tony? They fall through the center of the earth. <laughs> Does Brendan Fraser guide them? <laughs> I, I wish. The, the core was a way better movie than this. Uh, the core? I was thinking Journey to the Center of the Earth. Oh, I was thinking DJ Qualls. <laughs> <laughs> People often mix those two up. Yeah, sorry. I, I forgot how many Center of the Earth movies there were. You know, in retrospect, I think I like the core more than I like this movie by a fair margin. Uh, so do I. Yeah. But... Yeah, anyway, so what it is, it's basically a commuter train that will drop you from Australia directly through the core of the Earth and get you to your job in 17 minutes with a slight shift in gravity uh, about halfway through. Yeah. Um, they didn't really explain how they dealt with the 6,000 degrees Celsius temperatures in there. Yeah. Or how they got this thing built or how this is in any way a more effective <laughs> means of transport than just, you know flying i guess or having a rail car on the surface that's maybe cut off from all the chemicals uh, i don't know I, th I thought it was an extraordinarily stupid idea so it's like 17 minutes from one end to the other right yes how fast do you have to go for that to be the reality i think fast enough that everybody who was on that thing would have their skin peeled back and plastered to the back of this mid-earth train car whatever it is right <laughs> I can't speak enough about how dumb an idea this is. I've seen a lot of science fiction movies. Science fiction, along with action, is probably my favorite genre. Right. And this has got to be a top ten stupidest idea of all time. Now, getting back to the Len Wiseman of it all and his direction of like action and actors in front of effects, there's a scene when they're on the fall oh and it's flying God. through the center of the earth <laughs> and they like shoot out a window and, like, just walk out the window and are, like, climbing up a ladder. And their hair is, like, barely blowing. <laughs> yeah. Like, when you... I mean, okay. Even if you don't think it's a stupid idea. No, it's a stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, when you're making one of these things, you can't just roll the window down. Because right. you're traveling at literally thousands of kilometers an hour. Yeah. Um, not to mention the fact that, like, yeah, the center of the Earth is literally as hot as the surface of the sun. Right. Well, give or take a thousand degrees sure. Celsius or so. <laughs> now, this is an Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast, so I could maybe believe that Arnold Schwarzenegger could step on the outside of this thing and survive and fight some bad guys, give some one-liners. But there's no way you're going to convince me that Colin Farrell and Brian Cranston are going to do this. Well, you know if Arnold does it, he's hanging from a rail, like legs flapping in the breeze, doing the ay ay ay. Like, it's definitely, you're going to have the intensity. Whereas this, like, Len Wiseman, he's terrible with effects and actors. Like, he's really bad at it. He obviously loves to just paint giant canvases of really ugly to look at CG. Where it's just like, everything's moving on every frame of the, like, <laughs> that you're looking at. So it's like, I don't know what to look at. It's very busy. But he loves to just drop actors into it where it looks like they're in front of a green screen. Yeah, it was one of the things I was actually thinking of while watching this movie. It's just... It must be really weird to be an actor in a movie like this because you're literally given like a lazy boy chair with a green screen behind you. Yeah. And you have you've got like Len yelling at you. Now don't no, say it more intensely. Yeah. Well there's a car chase in this that owes a lot to the opening of Star Wars Episode 2. Hard to hard to believe it's derivative of something. I know. Attack of the Clones. I don't know if you guys remember that, but it's the part where they're in Coruscant. And, like, Anakin and Obi-Wan are, like, jumping from car to car in these flying cars. And it's really... As much as I was never a fan of that sequence in that prequel movie, I appreciated it a lot more watching this movie where you remove geography and any sense of logic. Or, like, at least in Attack of the Clones, I understood how the cars worked. Yeah, I think there was something similar in, like, The Fifth Element. Or, oh, totally, yeah. Or any other number of movies with flying cars that, that did it better than was done here. Yeah, like, this one, there's, like, no geography to the to the chase. I have no understanding as to what the grid is that these cars drive along. It's very confusing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... I don't know if it's supposed to be confusing, but I think it's it's like a movie that's been shot... Rather than being shot sequence by sequence, it's almost, like, scene by scene. Yeah. So... Now they're driving and someone's after them. Uh, who cares where they were when when they started? They're going to be 
wherever they need to be in order for this scene to take place. I sound like a broken record, but I've talked in the past about how not a lot of directors, it seems, especially nowadays, know how to assemble action sequences mm-hmm. where it feels like they planned out each beat of the action sequence to like build and crescendo. This one is a perfect example of one that is literally, as you said, just shot moment for moment. And they're like, I don't know, we'll assemble it in the editing room. Like it just feels chaotic for the sake of chaotic. And there's there's no like rising tension to it. You're just sitting there passive staring at this blur of CG and actors who are visibly sitting on like apple crates. <laughs> Which is kind of weird, isn't it? Because when you're constructing almost everything out of CG, you'd think it would be easier in some ways to construct a strong visual narrative. Yeah. Uh, because you can just do whatever you want. Yeah. But that's not done here. No. And I think maybe my favorite terrible action sequence in this movie is the one involving the building full of elevators. Oh, I knew you were going to get to it, Cam. I don't even want to think about it. Uh... (laughs) What kind of puzzle-crazed society is this where they've constructed a building that is, like, almost entirely small elevators that come at every direction and seem to exist on some sort of grid that makes no coherent sense (laughs) and just fly around, like, willy-nilly? Yeah, this this scene is immediately following the car chase scene where they, uh, Douglas Quaid and Melina, I think her name was Jessica, Jessica Biel's character, character, the Freedom Fighter character. Yeah, I, I'm just taking a I'm just taking a stab here. It could have been Belina for all I know. <laughs> I did I didn't check the credits. Right. Uh, they've been told you've got to go to Douglas Quaid's apartment. There is some cryptic references to the key. Yeah. Uh, they go there. There's some unconvincing hunting around they finally figure out that there's uh another cryptic message inside a piano inexplicably yeah i didn't really understand how all that came together but yeah i mean that's neither here nor there right and then you know and then the cops come again or i guess the united federation officers and Mm -hmm. they need to make a daring escape Uh, and they get into an elevator like we've seen in so many action movies and they climb into the elevator shaft and that's where we learn that this building is made entirely of a lobby <laughs> and Colin Farrell's apartment because everything else is an elevator apparently. Yes. And they exist on like no it seems any kind of coherent track system. They just literally are flying all over the place. It's like the magic door systems in Monsters Incorporated. Like it's just like doors everywhere the eye can stretch. That's what it's like here. It's just elevators everywhere, flying left, right, and center. Yeah, who is on these elevators? They're going very quickly all the time. Because you know what? Like, when I go to a building and I push, if I'm the only person there and I push the button, yeah, you can hear the elevator kind of start to work. Yeah. Right? The elevator slowly comes down to the floor that I'm on and the doors open up. Yeah. And then I push a button. Yeah. And the elevator will will take me to that floor. Maybe with a stop along the way to pick up another rider. Right. Um, the elevators that I'm familiar with don't just continuously go up and down and around to random floors without anybody on them. And they certainly don't cross paths with each other on a regular basis in, yeah. in near misses that uh, with sufficient force to rip the arms off of battle robots. I want to see the engineer who put together this elevator system. Because it's like a diseased mind came up with this this uh, setup. Yeah, it's like MC Escher made <laughs> made an elevator system. How did anyone in the design phase of this movie, sitting there plotting out this idiotic sequence, go like, "Yeah, this makes sense"? <laughs> well, I will say, I mean, it actually reminds me of a scene in uh, Galaxy Quest. Do you remember that one? The, yeah, the Sigourney Weaver. Right, the Tim, comedy, yeah, the, the Tim, like really Tim goofy Allen. comedy, yeah. Yeah, where they have to go into the bowels of their ship, right? And they they need to go through a sequence of uh, pneumatic presses that are just going up and down, called yeah. the chompers, yeah. Uh, which was a parody of how like there's these kinds of needlessly dangerous, useless equipment in the bowels of, right. uh, I guess, Star Trek ships. It reminded me exactly of that. but And that was a comedy. That was a parody. Yeah, that's a funny movie commenting on the absurdity of these sorts of concepts. This movie has zero sense of humor. The original Total Recall is actually pretty funny. Like, Verhoeven is a funny guy, in his mo- and his movies have that wry wit to them. This movie has zero sense of humor. And so when you throw in something this stupid and absurd, it just seems <laughs> that much more weird. 
Are we being too harsh on this movie? No, we're again? not. No, this movie's not good. Like, it's really boring. I'm wondering, like, did, did maybe we just got it on a bad day or something like that. No, I, think I don't it... think so. I think this is a lousy movie and that <laughs> d- never once justifies its existence. Yeah, I mean, I'm in agreement with you, but now I'm thinking about how, how I felt when I first saw it and how you felt when you first saw it. Uh, I wasn't, like, over the moon when I saw it, for I wasn't sure. over the moon, but I didn't hate it. And so why do I hate it now? I'm really mm-hmm. questioning my own identity and my own existence here. Maybe because, you know, the experience of doing Arnie Geddon, revisiting all these classics, you're seeing more like, wait a second, that's what those ones did well as we talk and break them down after the movie. And then you watch this one, you're like, wait a second, none of this works. <laughs> like, there's nothing about this movie that's like interesting in any sort of logical way or even from a character point like was there an interesting character in this movie for you was there a performance that was fun no <laughs> like that's the thing there's nothing <laughs> there's nothing to hold on to and if you give me a goofy dumb movie with something as absurd as that elevator sequence but you throw in characters that i actually find fun to hang out with suddenly i'm having a little more fun whereas in this case Colin Farrell's blank slate, you know, and Jessica Biel's about the same. And so all I can focus on is the weird world building because the characters aren't engaging me. Maybe the best way to do this is to do a little bit of head-to-head with, okay. the, with, the, with the Total Recall 1990 and Ooh, I like Total Recall this. 2012. Yeah. So we'll take some scenes maybe that are similar okay, uh, or the same for in the two movies and then determine which one did it better. Okay. I have a suspicion. Yeah, it's going to be a blowout for uh, the 1990. But, you know, I think it's worth the exercise. Sure. Okay. So, establishing the everyman. Mm -hmm. Colin Farrell, they establish him working at the police robot factory. Yeah, building synthetics. Yeah. That's right. Arnold Schwarzenegger, they establish him as having giant biceps working a jackhammer. Right. Okay, well, the Arnold one's way more fun. I would say the Colin Farrell one is more functional from a screenplay point of view, establishing his tie-in to the villain plot. That doesn't make it more interesting. That doesn't make it more fun to watch. Uh, the Arnold one's definitely more fun. But I would say from a screenplay point of view, I understand the logic of the Colin Farrell choice. Well, fair enough. That's a, um, I like how you're just giving a giving an easy point. Yeah, to, to yeah. Go. Okay, how's this? Shortly after Douglas Quaid finds out that people are after him, there's a scene... In the 1990 movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger uses some forceps to pull a tracking device out of his nose. Right. Colin Farrell, in a similar way, uses a broken piece of glass to pull a glowing phone out of his hand. Yeah, I mean, the the nose thing wins by a long shot, which is such a weird effect. Again, practical, which this movie's very little in the way of cool practical effects whatsoever. Um, and the, the phone hand thing, I think you and I were just spending more time to trying to figure out how these phone hand things would work. So by the time he's cutting out, we're like, okay, who cares? I, I actually think that that would be a really interesting thing. I think as an actor, you would just have to laugh when a director told you, like, just, just walk around holding your, yeah, make like you're holding an invisible phone and yeah. talking into it. Like Verhoeven was definitely going for an effect that was like unsettling, weird, a very cool effect shot with that nose thing, whereas this one's kind of, I don't know, it's perfunctory. Okay. How about uh, in the scene where uh, Douglas Quaid is going through customs? Yeah. Uh, if you'll remember in the 1990 Total Recall, it turned out that Schwarzenegger was inside a malfunctioning disguise of an overweight woman that started just repeating itself kind of echolaically. Right. Whereas Colin Farrell, they they had a shot of that a very similar character. Yeah. Um, but it turns out he was wearing a collar that made him look like an old Asian man. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, like the once again, it's all in the staging, right? Like I can't say one choice is specifically better than the other. It's just that like the way that Verhoeven directs the meltdown of that disguise that Schwarzenegger wears is so weird that it's unforgettable. Whereas this one is just feels more like generic. Okay, I've got a couple more for you. Okay. After Douglas Quaid has been on the run with his new love interest, I guess, he's now separated from his murderous wife. Sure. There's a scene where somebody who is ostensibly one of the bad guys appears to him and says, you're still in the simulation. Uh, I've just been put here to tell you that you are having a paranoid disassociative break. Yeah. That's what they called it in this one. I can't remember what they called it in the last one. Right. And you need to wake up. What did you think of those two scenes compared? I think... 
the once again, it's all in the direction and the staging. The original with the doctor showing up. Who has the bead of sweat, which yeah, gives it away. With Sharon Stone there, that scene, just the way it's written and directed, does an amazing job at convincing you that this could be a Quaid fantasy. And, you know, it's that, that bead of sweat that is the the big giveaway. And it's a very much a aha moment for the audience as well. Like, I think it's directed beautifully. This version, where it's Bokeem Woodbine showing up, I think the problem might be in that Bokeem Woodbine shows up, and we have Colin Farrell there with Jessica Biel's character, who's arguing against it the entire time. <laughs> so you're like, well, wait, now you have this person the entire time the scene's going on saying, he's lying, he's lying, this is all a joke, whatever. And Kate Beckinsale's character, who's the villain, of course, you know, before the Sharon Stone one in the original, was front and center in the scene, playing a dramatic part. Whereas in the remake, Kate Beckinsale's far in the background looking like, I don't know, like a sobbing widow or something in the rain. Like, she's not actually interacting with the actors. Yeah, it's interesting, too, in this case, because they're trying to take him alive. They're trying to make him give himself up. Yeah. But they've already established that there's some kind of gun that will shoot basically like a magnetic rope around you and capture you. Yeah. And they're totally surrounded. So yeah. it's, it's not clear to me why they really care if he thinks he's in the simulation or not. Why not just... No. Throw some knockout gas or a electro rope or whatever it is there. And it's too overblown. The original, it's a simple scene. It's a room with three actors. Mm -hmm. This one, it's like there's robot men around. There's like an army of people all around. There's guns being tossed back and forth. It's just like, it's overkill and it just loses the dramatic uh, momentum. Okay. Well, maybe let's take a look at... I will say, Bokeem Woodbine, though, pretty good. I like him. Yeah, yeah. No, I think he did a pretty good job. Yeah. Well, maybe let's take a look at some of the characters. Who who was more convincing in the movie as Douglas Quaid? Was it Colin Farrell or Arnold Schwarzenegger? I guess we can say Colin Farrell was a more convincing everyman. <laughs> I guess that's that that is true. Yeah, <laughs> but he's he's decidedly less fun. He's way less fun. He just he, kind of is very morose and he doesn't say a lot. Even his even his lines that are kind of funny are designed to be kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, I was like, huh. Yeah. Um, whereas you have Schwarzenegger taking a line that's not particularly funny see what the potty richter yeah this is low wattage colin farrell yeah this is not like bullseye and daredevil colin farrell <laughs> okay well how about uh kate beckinsale versus sharon stone well this is an interesting one because i feel like this is the most splashy character in these movies and uh, like i think kate beckinsale is fun but she just doesn't have like the really good material that Sharon Stone had. Like, Sharon Stone kills it. She's the way better version. Um, but, like, Kate Beckinsale, I think, is probably up to the job. But maybe if someone else had made the movie, she could have delivered. Uh, someone besides her husband? Yeah. Well, then-husband, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what did you think of Kate Beckinsale in this? I thought she was okay. I thought the material that she had was way worse yeah. than the stuff that Sharon Stone had. But it's hard to argue. If you're going to go with devious femme fatale... It's hard to top Sharon Stone. When you had that great moment in the original where he, like, leaves for work and, like, her entire expression changes. She's got that blank look on her yeah. face. And again, there's no ambiguity or depth to this character. It's just once the cat is out of the bag and he's gone to recall, Kate Beckinsale hates him. Yeah, like, you don't get those shades with that character with her. It's an instant, like, light switch where she just suddenly becomes a, like ass-kicking, like, <laughs> you know, femme fatale out of nowhere, it seems. You also don't have the relationship with, like, the Richter character that you had in the original. They've removed the Michael Ironside villain character from this remake. She's kind of doing both roles. She's doing both. And I think you lose something with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, how about Ronnie Cox versus Brian Cranston as the kind of big bad? I mean, they're both good actors. I wouldn't say that Cohagen is a great villain, uh, in the scheme of villains, um, I think Michael Ironside is the more memorable villain in the original Total Recall. But, you know, Brian Cranston's fine. It's just that his plot is really stupid. Yeah, well, I think if you take a look at their death scenes alone, I, yeah. mean, I mean, Brian Cranston, his final scene, it, it's like Colin Farrell is beating up on his dad. Yeah. Uh, where, <laughs> where <laughs> His dad is wearing like a slick new toupee. <laughs> yeah, they establish them as like serving in the war together. Uh, yeah. I wasn't convinced. Whereas, like, <laughs> Ronnie Cox, uh, you know, has his eyes blown out of his head by an atmospheric change on Mars. Yeah. Um, you know, is kicking over fish tanks. Yeah. Uh, 
a lot of the funny scenes where they established that Ronnie Cox and Schwarzenegger were friends. Right. Th- th- that was some pretty great stuff. That was gold. Like, I was waiting for that moment where they would actually have more of an interaction between the Brian Cranston villain and uh, the original version of Colin Farrell's character. You know, like, the Hauser character. Like, that was the one of the most fun moments in the original was the video of you know evil arnold being like ha 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 we got you <laughs> yeah no, and you was, don't get anything uh, like that like you get you get colin farrell looking even more morose uh, in these videos saying like yeah. uh, if you're getting this video it means that they've captured me oh man like what, what, i'm having a bad day does colin farrell have any other mood in this movie than just like downbeat and morose confused i guess a little bit he, he doesn't even look that confused he just looks miserable yeah i mean he, he, even when they, they're establishing him as an everyman at the robot factory, he doesn't even get the promotion that he wants. <laughs> oh, th- he's like, thanks for trying, man. I really appreciate you putting the word in for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I have to ask, what did you think of the swap-up? We had Quato, the mutant, oh, in the original. I was saving that one for the last. The uh, the Going from Quato, the... Uh, I forget who played the... the I can't remember, yeah. ...character Quato. Yeah. Um, but, you know, basically a guy... With a mutant baby yeah. inside as the leader of the resistance, and then you go to Bill Nighy, who's just like, like, what a waste of a great actor. <laughs> yeah, like he has the worst dialogue humanly possible. It's just like, oh, you know, uh, I'm a just resistance leader. Such a pseudo crap philosophy. Yeah, he's just, very much like the boring Morpheus. Yeah, Morpheus. He's, like, he's like, well, what really matters is. Uh, you, you live for today. Your your past is just uh, a part of uh, you know maybe who you were. Uh, and just like okay, come on, Bill. And he's killed in no time. Yeah, like it, the character makes zero impact, and then he's dead. Yeah, it doesn't matter at all. And then and then finally, I think it would be a shame. This is a total recall podcast. Did you prefer the three-breasted prostitute in the original? Yeah. Or in the remake? <laughs> I can't even figure out why that character is in this movie. I think just as a nod to the original. In in the original... It uh, made sense because they're all mutants, They're right? all mutants. Yeah. Uh, and so you're like, oh, okay, this is just kind of like a, a funny nod. Yeah. In this one, he's, he's just kind of walking around the colony. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the streets of Australia. <laughs> sure. And, yeah, there she is. Yeah. But it doesn't really make sense why she would be a three-breasted prostitute. Like, okay, I guess. I guess. Anything goes in the colony, I guess. But also, and this was something I commented on when we were watching it. Once again, we're seeing that the Quaid character, the idea of doing recall comes to him by seeing advertisements on public transit. But when he actually goes to the facility of recall, it seems like the shadiest, like, two-bit operation. Like, why do they have so much public advertising for something that looks like it's down a dark alley? It looks like an opium den. Yeah, it totally does, yeah. Yeah. What I'll say is just wrapping that up on our comparison of different things, I don't think there's a single thing that you can compare one-to-one in this new movie that this movie did better than in the original. Uh, You take these things that Verhoeven made super iconic and super interesting, and this movie took those and just made them worse. Somebody must have known that they were making them worse because how can you go from, you know, a malfunctioning animatronic woman in like a moo with Arnold Schwarzenegger coming out of it to yeah. like a bad CG video caller? But the movie also seems embarrassed by its callbacks where it's just like rushed through them really fast. Like toss them out there so people go, oh, I know what that means. But they're like, drop it, move on, move on, move on. Yeah. But it's not like they're moving on to their own original ideas. It's like they don't have any original ideas. Well, they do, but they're just not very good. Well, they're not really that original, and they're not particularly fun, yeah. I Well, I can say, in all honesty, I have never seen a building made entirely out of elevators. That is true. And, I mean, that felt like a attempt to one-up the elevator uh, Richter scene in, uh, in the original. Because there is a scene where a robot That's arm right. gets ripped off. Yeah, and it didn't work. No. And why did... Okay, so you have these robot synthetic guys, right? And they're like these white and black stormtrooper looking dudes. Um, And then you had the other police that were like humans wearing outfits that look like Snow Job from G.I. Joe. I didn't understand. It It didn't make any sense to me why Brian Cranston's character would want to create a, a big synthetic army. 
Yeah, what did he want? He explained that uh, the United Federation of Britain had become overpopulated and they were running out of room. Right. And so they wanted to, I guess, annihilate the population of the colony, raise it, and then create some more living space. But really, anytime they were in, in some kind of interior space in either the colony or the British Federation, uh, it seemed like everyone had lots of room. I mean, they got all those elevators. Take out some of the elevators and make more living space. Yeah, they had a huge lobby. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of spacious interiors in this movie. Yeah, a lot of wide hallways. Uh, yeah. So it didn't really seem like there was a, a space crisis. And what I'll say, too, is even if there was, if there was this overpopulation concern, uh, I mean, I'm no economist, but from what I understand of job markets is where you have too many people, you can get people to do jobs for quite a bit cheaper. I, I imagine especially in a dystopian future like this. So sure. why would you spend all this time and money and energy creating uh, a robot police force when there's lots of people who would just do that job for way cheaper? I have no idea. doesn't make a lot of sense. And so once you build your enormous robot police force, then what? What are they doing? Uh, but policing, I guess. Policing who? Uh, Colin Farrell. <laughs> <laughs> I like that there's like a real space problem, but like Colin Farrell can fit a grand piano into his apartment. <laughs> yeah, and so again, you want to compare the two. Um, I mean, that's the the resistance subplot in this movie where there's supposed to be a, a kill code. Yeah. That's inside of Colin Farrell's brain that will shut all the synthetics down. I don't know why you couldn't just reboot them with a different code. I think the code was Order 66. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Never seen that before. This felt so Attack of the Clones, though. Yeah. With, like, Palpatine and his Grand Army. Oh, my God. They it felt lo- so much like they that. They even looked like the clones from the, 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 they the Star Wars prequels. Yeah. <laughs> but And you compare that to the the grand plot in the original Total Recall, which is uh, we're going to reactivate this weird alien machine we don't really understand that's going to create atmosphere on Mars. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's no contest. No, and I mean, the Ronnie Cox villain plot made more sense than what Brian Cranston's trying to do here. Like, it was fairly basic. The, the Ronnie Cox one, it was very much a, I want this, ergo profit. Whereas the Brian Cranston one, you're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, it doesn't feel like it was thought out as well. Yeah, and I don't know if you noticed either, but one of the things we talked about in our... 1990 Total Recall episode is how the future was very much the future of the 80s. Right. Did you find that here? I thought that this movie, it was kind of like, this is the future of 2012. Where, you know, in 1990, what is the future going to have? A lot of synth music. Sure. In 2012, what is the future going to have? Dubstep. And lots of it. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's true. Like Skrillex was hanging out in pretty much every scene here. Yeah, what are we going to have? We're going to have glow-in-the-dark tattoos. Totally. Oh, yeah, the, the tattoo stuff. And and a lot of that blue-gray kind of cinematography. Mm-hmm. This felt very, like, end-of-2000s-era blockbuster. Like, it almost feels like it was a little too late for this movie. This movie should have come out in, like, 2006. Yeah, but then it wouldn't have been able to rip off all these other movies that came out between 2006 and 2012. would have been able to rip off at least a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> Because it does feel like it's an accumulation of over a decade's yeah. worth. The other thing about this movie, and we've talked about movie length before on this podcast. Yeah. This movie was too long. Yeah, the original Total Recall was like, I think it was like an hour 47 or something like that. This one's two minutes less than two hours. It's an hour and 58 minutes, which it does not deserve. Like when you watch the movie, there's so many boring scenes of Colin Farrell and Jessica Biel just <laughs> miserably failing to create romantic sparks. Or or Colin Farrell and Bokeem Woodbine just talking over drinks about how they're feeling about life. Yeah, and, yeah. And I get it, you're trying to establish it, but these, these scenes just went on and on. Well, you don't even need that many because the Bokeem Woodbine <laughs> character has the scene with Colin Farrell where they're on the fall. And that's what sets up the fall, too. So we understand what that is for the rest of the movie. You built up the camaraderie in that scene. You don't need that following scene where they're in a bar and Colin Farrell's like, 
Yeah, I just don't know what to do. I'm thinking about going to recall. And Bokeem Woodbine's like, don't. They mess with your brain. Oh, I don't know. I'm just really lost. Like, skip that. Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger saw that ad and he went to recall. He didn't go with... I don't remember if the character's name was Harry or whatever, the friend's name. But he didn't go with his buddy, uh, you know, that Italian actor, and then be like, I don't know. I'm thinking about going to recall. You know, like, no one needs that scene. I think he did that with multiple characters in this movie, too. Colin Farrell. Yeah. Because he did that with Kate Beckinsale. He did that with Bulking Woodbine. I'm sure if there had been other characters around. I mean, I think even John Cho, who was... Actually, I thought was kind of a highlight of this movie. He was fun, yeah. Um, who's running the recall center slash opium den. But look at the difference, too, in the recall scenes. Like, the way the Arnold Schwarzenegger one is staged versus this one. Where every character is memorable. In the uh, original, yeah, yeah. Yes. But also, like, when they plug Arnold in and it, everything starts going haywire... This one, they plug Colin Farrell in, the police run in, and it's like, stop it, pull out the needle. It's like over in a, like, you know, snap your fingers. Yeah, and I think that goes to uh, the lack of ambiguity in this movie, right? Yeah. Because uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger gets plugged into this machine, he starts going bananas, yeah. and from that point forward, you're not really sure what's real and what's not. Right. And I will admit, in this movie, I did have a brief moment where I was like, oh, what's real or what's not? He just killed... 10 or 15 police officers sure. and now he's all of a sudden in a spy drama and it was kind of working for me for you know maybe 10 or 15 minutes right and then they just kind of blew all the tension and blew all the ambiguity and that was it for it yeah even the end of the movie you know the original of course famously has the fade to white yeah and this one there's like nope fade to black happy you know happily ever after yeah exactly like okay well there it is. There's your total recall, I guess. Yeah, it would be like if the ending of Inception, the top just fell over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like this movie just... It doesn't feel like it has any aspirations. Like, I don't feel like anyone involved in this was like, let's make something cool. I think it aspired towards giving people epileptic seizures. Because yeah. Uh, there is so many strobes in this movie. Yeah. I thought I was in a disco during some of the fight scenes. <laughs> That's very accurate, yeah. Especially that opening scene. Oh, yeah. Like the... Uh, the, the dream the scene, sequence? The dream sequence with Jessica Biel, yeah. It's just like strobes like hitting the screen just the entire time. <laughs> Again, that feels very post-J.J. Uh, Abrams Star Trek to mm -hmm. do. Yeah, like, oh, it just drives me nuts when I see a movie like this because I'm like, you have good actors, you have... I'm sure people in your art department that are talented. Uh, you have a writer that I like some of their work. And it's just like, to what end? Like, what did you get out of this? You know, when you have this whole climax, this really lousy climax on this elevator. And then it's like falls to the ground in a really crappy looking CG explosion. We got we got some like early 2010s uh, mandatory CG enhanced parkour. It would be hard to imagine. Yeah. Uh, a 2005 to 2015 movie with action movie without uh, a bunch of unconvincing parkour in it. Yeah. But it all just kind of collapses into this heap of CG nonsense and you're left with like so what? Like what was what was the big like hook to this movie when it's over? Like why do I want to revisit this? This feels like the epitome of like a one and done movie they just crank into theaters where people go opening weekend cuz hey, I I like Total Recall. And then they're never meant to think about this movie ever again. Like, it doesn't... Like, Verhoeven pulled people in with, like, the, you know, the cheap sensationalism of a Schwarzenegger movie. You know, big violence and really crazy effects. But he gave you food for thought. He was definitely trying to leave you with some impressions to think about the movie after it was over. Whereas this one, it just feels like, no, that's not really what they aspired for. Yeah, I mean, we got we got the Resistance winning in the, in the 1990 version. Yeah. We got Mars in... Uh, one of those insane 1980s, 1990s visual effects and the big oxygen volcano yeah. that put atmosphere on Mars. Uh, you got nothing. I don't really even know what they accomplished in this movie. What what did Colin Farrell's character accomplish at the end of this movie? He he blew up the fall, which I got to imagine, uh, you know, it leveled a couple buildings. I have to imagine that blowing up the transit system through the center of the Earth yeah. is going to have extraordinarily serious effects <laughs> on the surrounding area. Yeah, and when you look at the original, when Arnold wins, you know, at the end of the day, you get the sense, like, he has found his true self. 
Like, when he gets to the end, you know, Arnold embraces Rachel uh, Ticketon. I think that's the pronunciation. I think we may have gone that wrong. We don't really know. Apologies to Rachel if we've got it wrong. Yeah, but he embraces her. And you get the sense that for the first time in his life, at least that he remembers, he understands who he is and he's comfortable with himself. Yeah, identity crisis resolved. Exactly. Whereas, like, Colin Farrell, you just kind of get this mopey, puppy dog-eyed look at Jessica Biel. Credits. And you're like, okay, whatever. Like, this does not well, seem like a brave, like, uh, you know, like, spy-type guy to me. Well, at least they had a strong foundation to their relationship. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that was really great stuff. <laughs> was there anything about this movie? Because we've just been <laughs> kind of ragging on this movie. Was there anything about this movie that you did like? Not really. But there was a <laughs> one bit I wanted to mention, too, which is the big final scene with Kate Beckinsale's character. Where Colin Farrell wakes up in, like, I guess an ambulance. I guess. There's no windows or anything. It was a little confusing in the staging. But she's in there disguised as Jessica Biel's character and tries to kill him. And he, like, shoots her out the back door of the ambulance. And then, you know, Jessica Biel's waiting out there. How did any of this happen? This is such a weirdly staged scene. I am convinced that uh, the Kate Beckinsale character originally died in the uh, the fall explosion but then they were like, no, this character is too much of the big villain. We have to give her a proper end. And then they like rewrote this and shot this after. Because it seems so weird and isolated from the rest of the movie. Yeah, and then he just blasts her out the back of the ambulance. Uh, all the cops that are around raise, raise their guns. And then I hear you hear someone in the background go, hold your fire, it's him. Yeah. And then people just lower their guns and kind of go on about their business. Like, he, As far as I know, he's still a nobody. Yeah, and the scene just... Ends with him and Beale back together. Like, they don't even acknowledge the dead body at their feet. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very weird. Yeah, like, uh, it feels to me like a reshoot. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Uh, like I said at the outset of this podcast, the last half an hour of this movie, and I know I should probably be paying close attention throughout because we are going to do a podcast on it later. I was kind of checking in and out. Uh, I, I caught myself... My eyes glazing over during that whole fall scene. And yeah. I come back in and be like, oh, Brian Cranston's still alive. Oh, yeah. Kate Beckinsale's, is she dead? Oh, she's gone. Well, now she's in an ambulance, so she must have been alive. So uh, it all just kind of melded together. I kind of got the point and, yeah. and my brain shut down for <laughs> about 20 minutes. So was there anything that you did like that you take away from this movie? I did like some of the visual effects. Uh, it's hard to pick out which ones, but... <laughs> No, there's a strong... That's the kind of thing you'd want to put on a DVD cover if you're, <laughs> you're marketing this movie. Like, yeah. I did like some of the special effects, but I'm not sure which ones. Tony G, Arnie Geddon podcast. Right. But, you know, I liked some of the some of the tech. I You know, I, I thought, like, the camera bomb thing was pretty cool. Yeah. I thought some of the... Even though they were pretty derivative, like, some of the shots of the city with, like, the... The rivers going through it and the and the boats on it that were kind of neat and there were there were some interesting action pieces. Uh, I mean, I made fun of the parkour. Some of it was kind of interesting, but for the most part, it it was not. Uh, there wasn't a ton to to recommend it for me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there are some nice locations here. Not big on a lot of the sets they made. A lot of the sets are kind of ugly and overly busy. But when it came to actual locations they used, there were some nice ones. Yeah, it had that thing uh, where it couldn't really decide between uh, that used future aesthetic that you get in Blade Runner and probably some other Philip K. Dick type sure. movies. And then also like the utopian yeah. future where everything's white and glowing. Yeah. It, it kind of switched back and forth between those two things intermittently. And they didn't do what you would expect, which is make the United Federation of Britain all clean and white and, sure. and make the the colony all all dirty and used technology yeah it just kind of wherever you were that it was more or less the same just a mishmash of that stuff yeah but other than that like i thought john cho was kind of fun I, I don't know that i got much else like yeah. really i don't think i got anything else out of this movie i can't say even like i like the score um you know <laughs> which was as we said basically just dubstep music I didn't like a lot of the cinematography. A lot of it was really ugly. It had that, if it wasn't the blue-gray kind of look, it was the, like, pea soup green kind of look to it. Yeah. It just was kind of ugly. A lot of strobes. I don't know. Even on, like, yeah, the technical end, I really don't really like this movie. 
I don't know. There's not much there. I can't even say, like, normally I would say maybe, like, the Kate Beckinsale character could have been fun, but I didn't really think she had anything fun to really do. And her big, like, line, I guess her supposed to be, like, maybe quotable line, I thought was terrible. The I give good wife. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't understand. I thought the character was having some sort of mental break. I, I thought I misheard the line. Yeah, no, that's what's exactly what she said, and I feel like that was supposed to be her catchphrase. Oh. Well, it's not very good. No, it's terrible. There's not a good, like, catchphrase in this entire movie. And so, like, when I think about this movie, my memories of it will be two things, both involving elevators. <laughs> yeah. The stupid fall and the stupid room of, uh, like, building of elevators. Yeah, too many elevators for one movie. I, I give I give this movie one elevator out of five. <laughs> <laughs> this elevator's still under repair. <laughs> yes. Will not reach top floor. <laughs> Okay, so I think that wraps us up for Total Recall 2012. Now, Tony, what are we doing next time? Next time we're going to celebrate the holiday season with the only movie that Arnold Schwarzenegger has ever directed. And that is the made-for-television movie remake of the 1945 classic Christmas in Connecticut. Now, I've never seen this movie. No one has. (laughs) But we'll find it and we'll figure out a way that you guys can watch it or figure out figure out a way to get it if uh i I believe it is on amazon prime um and there are a couple other services offering it especially if you're in the states uh in canada it's a little if you're but i think it might be on amazon prime yeah and if you're in europe you're on your own sure yeah (laughs) just google it there are services online that you can stream it at for free uh so it's out there yeah, or we did find it for sale online for $15. But uh, <laughs> We don't want anyone listening to spend $15 on this movie. Yeah, we're not going to. We're, we're going to find another way. Or, you know what? The alternative is, if you can't find a copy of the 92, watch the original, which I've heard is genuinely great. And then you can hear us talk about what the uh, remake did different. Yeah. More than that, I mean, I'm actually way less interested in the movie itself than I am in seeing... Uh, what Arnold does when he's behind the camera. Sure, yeah, because we only got one other example of Arnold directing, and we haven't talked about it yet. It's an episode of Tales from the Crypt. That's right, yeah. That'll come later down the road, but uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to talk about Arnold as director. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Okay, you can, of course, reach us at ArnieGeddonPod at gmail.com or on Twitter at ArnieGeddonPod. You can also leave us reviews wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us out hugely for getting us, you know, listed on rankings of movie podcasts and all that sort of stuff. Now, Tony, how do they get hold of you? You can find me, Tony G, that's Tony like the name, G like the letter, at arnegan.com. Feel free to also download us direct from the source if you don't like your streaming service. It does happen. That's www.arnegan.com. And you can, of course, find me on Twitter at Cam V is in Verhoeven. Boy, do we miss you, Smith. Okay, we'll be back with Christmas in Connecticut 1992.